You're listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in Lexington, Kentucky, and we would love to see you join God's restoring work of love in your life. You can find out more about us at restorationlex.com slash welcome. There's helpful links about how you can grow, how you can serve, and be good news in our city. Thanks for listening. A couple months ago, I was walking into a store, and I'm introverted, right? But a man walks up to me out of the parking lot and says to me, I promise myself that I would talk to the first person I saw today. And immediately I was like, the alarm bells of my introverted mind were going off and I wanted to run away, but I knew also at the same time I did not need to do that. And so he began to speak to me, this kind old man, and you know, talk about himself and introduces himself. Finally, comes out that he's a Jehovah's Witness. Um, I want you all to know, I don't know why, I don't know how, this is God's plan apparently, I am a Jehovah's Witness magnet. (laughs) Throughout my entire life, they have honed in on me to the point of where they have sent elders to my home because I've stumped the people. Now I kind of sickly love it. I love when they come up to me. So we have this conversation. He was so kind and so nice and... You know, they have this reputation, as you know, of like going to people's doors and knocking on them and being very bold about these things. And he was bold, but his boldness was a very kind and very inviting boldness. And we ended up having a very long conversation in the parking lot of the store. And at the end, you know, we're talking about the things we have in common, sharing the things we don't have in common, how their scriptures are different from our scriptures, and how that, in the end, tells very different stories from what we all believe. And neither one of us walked away converted that day. Um, I, hopefully, that's, 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 I was not converted at least. Maybe he was. Um, but I did feel this sense of gratitude in this process of knowing that I could have an engaging conversation with someone who is very different in their worldview, have and hold on to convictions, and yet walk away with a space and a place of kindness with it. And and when it comes to this idea of evangelism, I was very actually convicted that this man felt bold enough to walk up into a parking lot. Now listen, that's not my strategy. I'm not walking up to anybody in the parking lot unless God hits me on the head with a hammer or something. I'm not doing that. But I was convicted at least that this man believed with that much ferocity that he was willing to walk up with kindness to someone there. Now, when we talk about evangelism in the church... There is a load of baggage that comes with it. I mean, most of us, many of us, we've grown up with a gospel that has been reduced to sort of a sales pitch, like you're trying to purchase a timeshare in Florida. Um, it's, It's reduced to a belief statement that does little more than secure a spot somewhere up in the suite by and by. And at the worst, it becomes sort of a notch on your belt, like when you get that one person to sign up for your heavenly timeshare, then you are somehow progressed more in your faith. Now, some of us have been a part of churches, too, that where your final and full goal is praying the prayer, because if you get them to pray the prayer, then it counts. Then we move on to the next person. And so the passage that we read earlier that we're unpacking today kind of speaks to this how we might share our faith in the world around us. And I just wanted to say all that to know that I understand that when you come into it, a conversation about 
how we interact with our faith and how we share it and how we interact with people who are not like us, I understand that as you hear these words, sometimes you're sitting in an environment like this and there's some, there's some trepidation. There are some walls that maybe we weren't aware that they were there that come up. And I just want you to know there's grace for that and to just wrestle with me as we look at these passages together. What we're looking at today, I think, gives us some clarity on how we stand in this. But to understand it, with every scripture this is true, we have to understand the context. We always look at the scriptures and come to the scriptures within the context that they were written. John Walton, a scholar, says the Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us. Think about that for a second. The Bible is written for us. It's written for us to be able to understand. But when you're reading a letter to 1 Corinthians, to this church in Corinth, you need to understand who it's actually being written to to fully grasp what's happening in the passage. And that's how the scriptures become for us when we understand fully how and when and why they were written to these people. The city of Corinth, multicultural, pluralistic society. We talked about this last week where Christianity was a tiny and very overwhelming minority. And we inhabit a culture, as you probably know, that has for generations, at least in an American sense, been very, very Christian. A vague Christianity has been the majority in our culture for generations and generations. And so the dynamic of how we share the gospel in a very Christianized Christendom culture is different from reading this passage where the gospel is being shared in the margins and from the margins. When we read these scriptures, it's incredibly important for us to read them from the mindset of a people who are on the bottom, from a people who are not in power, from a people who are standing culturally spiritually, religiously in the margins. So when Paul shares his faith, it's not an act of power over. It is an invitation into something different. So we'd be wise to look at these words. We're going to look at the first verse here in the NIV, not what we read up here, of what Paul is speaking to starting in verse 9. Look with me here on the screen. It says, Though I am free and I belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Right here in this first statement, we see this picture of a posture that you and I, as we think about what it means to interact with others and our faith, how we are to hold it. I would call this confident humility. Maybe that seems like a, an oxymoron, but it's not. Paul is confident in what he is and who he is and what he believes, but there is a humility in how he engages others. There's a confidence in an identity. In Christ, he says, I'm free, and I belong to no one. Now, grow up in church, when we thought about how we interact with people who are not Christians. Now, I'm sure most of you have a job where you interact with people, or you're in school where you interact with people who are not Christians, right? Or not Christians like you. Growing up, there was a fear that if I spent time with atheists, I would catch atheism like it was a cold. So you, you, you know those people are out there, but you kind of hold them at arm's length. If we enter environments, we thought, that weren't explicitly Christian, we run the danger of losing who we are and what we believe. This posture, unfortunately, remains a fixture 
in a lot of Christian culture today where we isolate ourselves from the world out there to protect us from the influence of those who don't believe like we do. Does that feel or sound familiar to anyone in this room? Would anyone say they've grown up or been around a Christian environment that has taught something like this? Here's the thing, though. Living this way towards the world around us shows how fragile our faith actually is. It shows how fragile our belief and our belonging in Christ must be because if we can't inhabit a world where people think and look and act and vote differently than we do with confidence, then it shows how little confidence we have in the faith that we believe in the first place, right? Are you with me? The answer then is neither this arrogance that separates us from the world around us, or it's not also passively just blending in. Paul reminds us, 1 Peter 3.15, he says first, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. We begin this, this, this conversation with allegiance to Jesus, with our hearts secure in Jesus and who he is, our minds fixed on his promise. We began with, with knowing that Christ is the center of what we believe and he's how we believe in the first place. But Paul continues in this passage, he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, the assumption of these words is that you, in Christ, in your job, whether that be in a hospital or in a school or in a workplace or you're a realtor, your assumption, according to this passage with Paul, is that you are living in such a way that is tangibly, noticeably hopeful. Think about that. You're living in such a way in your workplace, in your school, your job, where you are on a weekly basis that is so radically hopeful, not perfect, but hopeful that people want to ask questions about why you are that way. Not because you separate yourself, but because in the midst of the world that you find yourselves in, you are visibly, you are tangibly hopeful. And because of this, our calling, Paul says, is simple. Be ready to explain that hope. Just if you simplify everything, it's that simple. Live hopefully, noticeably hopeful lives, and be ready to answer questions about why that is so weird in the world that we find ourselves in. We see this over and over in the New Testament. We're called to be present for and yet different from the world around us. Those aren't mutually exclusive. We are present in the world and for the world, but at the same time different, set apart for the sake of love within it. Those two things go together in the full totality of the picture of our mission as Christians in this world. So while we are set apart, yes, set apart from the world, we're different. We're not set above. That's the difference. Do you know what it looks like to be set apart and we're holy? We're not supposed to be like everybody else. A lot of people mean when you're set apart and you're holy, it means you're set above everybody else, right? You're better than them. So when you hear be set apart, you might think be better than those dirty sinners down there. That's not what Paul's saying. Looking back at 1 Corinthians 19, or 1 Corinthians 9, excuse me, he says, 
Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. That's a strange sort of phrase for our context, but the meaning here is simple. It means that we enter into the lives of those around us as a servant. There is a confident in, confidence in our faith in Christ and a humility as we enter into the stories of others. I love the message paraphrase that we just heard earlier, and I want to return to that. I love Paul, how, how Eugene Peterson frames Paul's words here. He says, even though I am free of the demands of, and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people, religious non-religious, meticulous moralists, loose-living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I did not take on their way of life. Listen to this. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world, and I tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempt to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. I did all of this because of the message. I didn't just want to talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. I loved that so, so much. I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. Why does this matter so much? I think it speaks for us to, to the reasons that people like us are trying to be a hopeful presence in the world. And it speaks to one of the reasons why a lot of us may have a sour taste in our mouth when it comes to evangelism. I mean, this has unfortunately been a fixture of Western Christian practice for, I mean, hundreds of years at this point. For a long time, conversion to Christianity in this country meant first a conversion to Western American culture. It began back way hundreds and hundreds of years ago when the Pope you know, basically said, hey, here's the doctrine of discovery. You can go and convert anybody you want in the new world, and if they don't convert or you just don't like the way they look at you, kill them. It's okay. God said it's okay. This manifest destiny was baked into the beginnings of our nation, and becoming a Christian for many people meant becoming European. You see this in the First Nations peoples here on the screen, how one of the conversion practices was not just that they would convert in their faith to Christ, it was a conversion to a culture that happens within this. You had to become white and European in everything that you did. And while countless, there's countless examples of good that missionaries have done, there's just as many good examples as bad examples. This picture has been seared into many people's minds that when we bring Christ into the culture, they're wanting us, they're thinking that we want them to become like us as much as anything else. And it looms large in the imaginations of so many people when you think about meaning and bringing Christ to the world. A Barner research poll came out a few years ago where Christians, 47% of the Christians said it's wrong to share your faith with people who are not like you. 47%, not non-Christians, 47% of Christians said it was wrong to share their faith with people who did not believe like them. I think a lot of that is rooted in this understanding of evangelism. And I know we have progressed a long way from there in many of the mindsets, but I think some of those underlying assumptions are still there. The assumption, basically, if I could sum it up, would be, if you want to become a Christian, then you have to become like me. 
got to take on my culture. You've got to like the music I like. You've got to dress like me. You've got to vote like me. You've got to do what I do. Let's look at how this works visually here on the screen. All of us have a worldview that's shaped by our experiences, our culture, our politics, our traditions. All of this forms us. None of us, I hope you know this, we, we don't come to Jesus in a vacuum. We come to Jesus in the midst of a particular culture and setting and environment with traditions. And so when we think about inviting people to follow Jesus, what we do Often, intentionally or not, we see here in the second picture, is we ask them to come through our worldview, come through our culture, come through our politics, come through our traditions. If you want to follow Jesus, well, you better vote like me. If you want to follow Jesus, you better join this denomination because they alone have the whole truth. If you want to follow Jesus, you better be an activist for this cause. Otherwise, your faith is not real. Over and over and over again, what happens is... People get so far, and then they run up against something that's very radically different from what they expected that has nothing to do with Jesus, and it pushes them away. Either people never get to Jesus, and they're turned away by whether it be our culture or our politics or our traditions, or worse sometimes, they convert to our culture and to our politics and to our traditions, and they call that Christianity, but they never convert to Christ. That's how we get cultural Christianity in this nation. There's a lot of people who convert to a particular cultural idea and setting and tradition and politics, but they never become faithful disciples of Jesus. Are you with me? So what's the alternative? Well, instead of seeing Jesus through the lens of our culture, through the lens of our traditions, through the lens of our politics, we see our culture, our traditions, and our politics through the lens of Jesus. Do you know there's a difference? Do you know what a massive difference that is? I think it looks something like this. That Jesus, as we come to him, begins to reshape and reform how we see and interact with our culture our politics, and our traditions, our experiences. We allow Jesus to transform the way we see them in order to enter into this vast mosaic of what the church beautifully is as we understand our culture in the midst of many cultures. Now, as we do this, we look at our culture, our politics, our traditions, all these things with two lenses, both with celebration and with critique. I'll give you an example. I love my denominational background for so many reasons. I learned to love the Bible. I learned to love the scriptures. I knew the Bible backwards and forwards going into college. Like I just, I consumed the Bible so much. That church helped me love Jesus. That church nurtured my faith in so many ways. And I hold on to that, celebrate it. I never want to lose that. But the longer I've walked with Jesus, I can also look through the lens of his life and see that there were places of dysfunction, particularly around the role of women, around areas of race and injustice, around the embrace of partisan politics and politicians as modern saviors. That stuff I'm happy to leave behind. There is both celebration and critique as I think through and process my cultural background and the lens through which I see 
the world. This may for some be construed as or called deconstruction, where you enter into this process of thinking through how I've been brought up before and leaving behind things that no longer fit with Jesus. I don't call that deconstruction, friends. I call that discipleship. That is a normal part of our Christian journey. As we walk with Jesus, looking back on our story and our experiences, holding on to the good, celebrating the good, but also finding things that no longer need to be a part of what we were doing. Discipleship, I define, is the continual process of unlearning and relearning everything we thought we knew, everything that makes us us, through the lens of Jesus. And as we commit to this practice, this, this practice together in community, as we learn to do this together, because in this room, I don't know how many people are in this room right now, but however many people are in this room, there are that many cultural backgrounds and experiences. There are that many different things being brought together. When we learn to look at our cultural framework at our worldview with both this celebration and critique, something beautiful happens. We can find a unity in Jesus that transcends our background, that transcends what we've come from. Because as we bring our whole selves to God, our whole stories to Jesus, because we're seeing these things with fresh eyes, there's a new kind of family that's possible. A family that the Bible calls a family of every tribe, and nation, and tongue, and people. Galatians 3.28 says, there's no neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, right? Amen? Are you with me? There is a unity in Jesus as we enter into the family of God that transcends our ethnicities, our gender, our socioeconomic background, everything. God in Christ has made us a new kind of misfit family of every tribe, nation, and tongue. That is on purpose. And when we come with that together, it is a beautiful thing. But at the same time, with that supernatural unity, we find diversity in Jesus that expands our horizons. As we learn to see the full spectrum, the mosaic of what God has done. I want you to hear this clearly because as we talk about unity a lot... This, this can get construed, misconstrued. Unity does not erase difference, right? Finding unity in the church does not erase our differences. Our passage today is not Paul saying, hey, Christians, you have to forget everything that you are to become a follower of Jesus. He's not asking them to leave behind who they are. He's asking them to bring their whole selves and see it transform. This is neither a call to color blindness or cultural blindness in the name of Jesus. This is a celebration of God's image in the multiplicity of cultures and experiences that we bring into a family like this. I get to see Jesus in you, in your culture, in your experiences, in your story, in a way that I could never see in my own. And I love that. Isn't that beautiful? I see more of Jesus through people who are not like me, then I could, and you could, if we just hung around people who have the same experience and culture we do. Jamar Tisby, he writes, human beings do not simply bear God's image individually, but collectively as well. Each people group with their various languages, dress, 
foods, clothing, and customs reveal a finite facet of God's infinite diversity. No single people group can adequately reflect the glory of God. Rather, we need the diversity present in the multiplicity of nations and tribes to paint a more complete portrait of God's splendor. I love that. In other words... The more I allow myself to enter into the stories and the experiences of others, Jesus gets bigger. Not that Jesus grows. Jesus never changes. The scripture is saying, but my vision of Jesus can get bigger. My picture of Jesus can get bigger. Years ago, someone was asking me, Justin, what was it like? Have you had a period where you have left behind and not really known that, that, that what your faith was and, and how, how you deconstructed. Like, did you have something like that? And, and I did. I didn't have a word for it back then because it, deconstruction wasn't as popular as it is at this point. But I described it to them as, as like a mountain. I, I've been to Colorado several times, and there's like Mount Evans is one of the 14ers there. And it's a big mountain. It's, it's one that you can climb if you want to. But as you walk up to the mountain, as you stand at the foot of the mountain, if you just stay there, it is a beautiful picture. Now, I, I, I didn't leave to go to a different mountain in my faith. What I did was, is I began the process of actually walking around and seeing that mountain for the full, big, beautiful picture that it is. The journey of faith is not leaving behind. It's seeing a bigger picture of what's actually there in the first place. And that's what happens as you and I, like Paul is calling us to here in the scriptures, allow ourselves to see the scriptures and see our faith through the cultural backgrounds and experiences of the whole church and not just people who are like us. I want to challenge you to do something here today as you go out from this place. I challenge you to listen and read, listen to podcasts, be influenced by followers of Jesus who are not a part of your cultural background. Particularly this month, I would encourage you to listen to the African-American voices that are prevalent and beautiful in the church. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of resource, of beautiful resource to see and to dwell within as we learn to see the family of God beyond our small picture. Paul calls us to enter the stories and the struggles of those who are around us. Again, here, this will close with this passage here, this one thing. He says, I kept my bearings in Christ, meaning I'm rooted in Jesus, but I entered their world and I tried to experience things from their point of view. I have the least relevant job in this church. You, on a weekly basis, are interacting with other coworkers. You're interacting with other students. You're hanging out with friends. You have to be at the coffee shop, the bar. Can I say the bar? I don't know. The bar? Let's be honest. I know who's here. You're hanging out with people, and God has placed you there on purpose. Scripture says in Acts 17, you were born, you live, you're where you are because God put you there. God placed you intentionally in your space in this world on purpose in order to be the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus 
in your job, in your work, in your family, where you are is intentional. And what Paul closes with in this recognizing our point of view, as you think about your mission in those spaces, as you think about what it means to be a Christian in your workplace or in your school, perhaps I want to encourage you today that the first step isn't of sharing Jesus, isn't speaking, it isn't what you say. I think what Paul says is it's listening. It's entering into the stories and the struggles and the experiences of others. What if we were known as followers of Jesus as being really good listeners? I don't know that we are right now. But what if we could be a people who interact with the world around us in a way that they know these people care about more than what happens when I die? I'm glad they do. But they care about where I'm at now. They care about my aches and pains and disappointments and failures and fears. They listen to my story. And I see Jesus in what they don't say long before I see Jesus in what they say to me. That's what I want to pray for as we move into a time of response together. For those of us who have come from backgrounds where the idea of even sharing our faith at all seems like a bridge too far right now, I know the Lord wants and is and will bring healing in that. Because, listen, I want people to know Jesus. And the way people know Jesus is through other people. And so I want us to share our faith. But I want us, as much as that, to be known as a people who, with confident faith and humility, enter into these stories and begin with a listening ear that looks like Jesus. So, so that's what I want to pray for here. Lord, I don't know what you're doing in our hearts individually as, as a church. Holy Spirit, I, I can say one thing up here, and you could be doing something totally different in, in someone's spirit, and I, I recognize that and submit to that and celebrate that, Lord. So whatever you're speaking and doing in our midst today,